0: The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. Uh, I want to get into the Word this morning. Now, we've been in a series concerning love. I'm excited for where we're at in that series this morning. I want to share a few things with you. Now as you know I'm always encouraging people to jot a few things down, take some notes. I mean, it just helps to record information. Also gives you an opportunity to revisit in your own time because we're here together and we're we're listening to a message together and and it's going to have an impact, but God is always speaking and ministering to you personally. I mean, his love for you can't be measured and he's he's very committed to your maturity and your growth and he's constantly ministering to you personally and when you revisit the word in your own time I, I can assure you great things will come from that so here's a few things that we're going to find as we go through the word together this morning uh, one we're going to find how everyone knows you're a Christian so this week I had a, an interesting week it had some some uh, unusual uh, activities that that are, are not in every week but uh, there was a question that was asked, and it was a, a great question to be asked, and it was, How do I know if I'm a Christian? How do I know that? Well, it's pretty interesting to think about that. I mean, you might hear that quick question, excuse me, and just think, uh, uh, You know, next, moving on, let's get to the next question, but that's a good thing to ask. So there's something in the scripture that God put in the word on purpose that reveals how everyone around us knows that we're Christians. And it's important to examine our lives to see if that exists. Uh, A second thing that that we're going to find in the Word is why we are armed with the Word of God. So we're in Texas, hallelujah, I can't believe that didn't get like an amen or, or, yeah, we're in Texas, so when you talk about being armed, you know, nobody stiffens up or gets weird. We're used to being armed, but God has armed us and he's armed us with the Scripture. I mean, he's even called the, the Word the sword of the Spirit. So being a a weapon in a spiritual realm, the sword of the spirit, uh, we're going to find out why we're armed with the word of God. And then another thing that we're going to find is what it means to love your neighbor. We'll see that Jesus says that's a very important thing. We need to find out what that actually means so that it becomes more than just a poetic statement that sounds nice, but it becomes an actual lifestyle that we're able to uh, live out. And glorify God. Uh, So, I want to get into the word here. We've started with some passages over the past few weeks that have been the foundation for the series. We're going to do that once again. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 7 through 12. We're going to find the, the importance and the value of love in these passages. Of course, you can find them in other places in the word, but there's some wonderful and powerful promises attached to love and its existence in and through our lives as we read here in 1 John chapter 4. Beginning in verse 7, it reads like this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And by this the love of God was manifest in us, that God sent his only begotten son Jesus into the world so that we might live through him. And this is the love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. That simply means Jesus took your place. That word propitiation is in your Bible three times, and they're all very powerful and and wonderful verses uh, to pursue. If you want to look up that word in your own time, uh, it, it would be a great word study. But it simply means that Jesus took your place. That cross was meant for you, and he took your place on it. I want to go down to verse 12, and in verse 12, uh, the the back half of verse 12 reads like this, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, I want to stop there for a second because I I really am, am made to stop at the word if. I mean, anything that introduces condition causes me to pause. If is a conditional phrase. I mean, let's just keep it really simple. Like if my sons were to want dessert, and I would say to them, you can have dessert if you eat your vegetables, they would understand that they first must eat their vegetables in order to have dessert. I mean, it's just really simple like that. So it's a, it's introducing a condition here, and, and we need to take a look at this. I mean, if we love one another, God's God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Well, God abiding in us is a wonderful and powerful thing. I mean, in fact, God's abiding presence is, is eternal life, according to the Scripture. And, and His love being perfected in us is really the key to a life that is filled with, with courage and strength and faith. I mean, God's perfect love has a wonderful effect. Take this verse down for your notes. I mean, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. It talks about the power of God's love being perfected in us, saying that there's no fear in love, but rather that perfect love drives out or casts out all fear. I mean, all fear, it's absolute. It doesn't mean some of it stays and some of it goes. It's talking about the absolute authority to eliminate anxiety and fear. So we see some wonderful and powerful things here as it concerns love, and we see it attached to that condition. If we love one another, if we love one another, that makes me want to focus in my life and in my ministry, I mean, with this congregation, it makes me want to focus on a goal, a goal of loving one another, not simply growing academically, even though that's a wonderful and and powerful thing, but growing relationally is what God has called us to do, to fellowship with each other to be sensitive to one another and and to each other's needs, to offer up love to one another in such a way that we see uh, the powerful results of God's promises manifest in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Uh, Now, Jesus gave us a commandment. You'll see, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. He's saying this in John chapter 13, and he goes on to say uh, that you would love one another. This is my call upon your life. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I mentioned before we're going to find out how all of the world would know that we're born again, that all the world would know that we are bought by the blood of Jesus, that we're powered and led by the Holy Spirit. I mean, all of those things aren't identified by the bumper stickers on our cars or the number of prayer meetings we attend, but rather the lifestyle that we live as it concerns each other. By this, all men, I mean, I love that it's all-inclusive. It's absolute. All men, not just, you know, the church congregation, but all men. The person that is is checking you out at the grocery store, the person that's rotating your tires, uh, the person that you sit next to at work, I mean, all men are included in this category. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I can see that loving each other is a really important thing here. I mean, it's, it's, it's a powerful thing. It's, it's a condition that when it's fulfilled opens up the door for fellowship with God, him abiding with us, and for his love to be perfected in us, that love that can cast out fear and anxiety. I mean, to love one another literally positions us to be led by God, to abide in his presence, and to live a life that can stand in faith and in boldness and in courage in the face of all that would lead the rest of the world into anxiety and fear and panic. Loving each other is an important thing. So that's really been the foundation for the series, to understand what that means. What, I mean, what is love? I, I say it a lot. I mean, we talk about it. It's in our vocabulary often. I mean, I, I could tell you just jokes about things that I've declared my love for. I mean, people say they love movies. They say they love, you know, different Things that, that they eat or consume. I mean, I've eaten a hamburger before and said, man, I love this burger. I mean, I've driven past restaurants and say I love that. There's a lot of love for food in my life for some reason. And I can tell my wife I love her. You know, I love you. I love you. And it's, it's become a routine thing to say. Uh, but when stuff becomes common, when things become common, they can lose their, their potency, they can lose their, their power. And, and that word has become a very common word in a lot of our vocabularies, and it can lose its oomph. So we're wanting to regain that. We see the importance of love, and so we're revisiting what love is for the purpose of seeing to it that love exists in our life. And we find that definition, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. We see love is. Now, what you're going to find here after the words love is is a definition or a description of the things that make up love. Love is patient. I mean, I can stop right there just so that you get an indication of where we're going with this. It's very easy for me to tell my children that I love them. Is it, is it with the same ease that I could confess that I'm patient with them? But love is patient. Love is kind. Once again, it's very easy for me to declare My love for my wife, I love you, honey. But could I just as easy with a clear conscience say, I'm kind to you. Love is made up of these things. And if these things don't exist in our lives, then love is a word used in vain. Love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And your King James Version would say it doesn't think evil. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I mean, we've mentioned this in the past when we come to that point, that in any situation in our life where we're needing to see victory or breakthrough or success, the one thing that the Bible promises never fails is love. To inject love into any situation, not just the empty word, the four-letter word that we can apply to a hamburger or a taco, but to apply love that is patient, kind, that doesn't envy, all of those things that make it up, to inject that into any situation is to inject that which never fails, that which is guaranteed to bring success. So we've gone through these things. We've talked about patience and what it means and where it's at in the scripture And not in full, but obviously in in one small message. But we've talked about patience. We've talked about kindness. We've talked about love, not being envious. We've gone down the list to where we're at today. Now, today, where it does not take into account a wrong suffered, I want to go with the King James Version, love thinks no evil. Love thinks no evil. Now, it doesn't really matter in the room here. I mean, normally, I'm reading a, a New American Standard. That's normally what I would read, but in this case, I'll generally cross-reference with a King James version. I, I really like some of the accurate translations of a King James version, and in this situation, I want to apply that. Now, the reason why I read a New American Standard rather than a, a King James is because I I really don't speak that way. Let me say that differently. I do not speaketh that way, so it's hard for me to read that. When I read it, my brain just kind of locks up, and it all gets muddy and and some people read that and, and that it flows. For me, it just doesn't. But I do like that interpretation. And the interpretation would be, love thinketh no evil. It doesn't think evil. It doesn't think evil thoughts. For love to exist in my life or in any relationship or in any situation, there will be an absence of evil thoughts. So we're going to talk about love having no evil thoughts. And we're going to, to find some things uh, in the scripture here. So here's what I want to offer up as we just jump right in. And I hope that you're ready to just jump right in. Okay, I mean, we could take a poll here. I mean, how many of you have evil thoughts? And I don't think people are going to be real thrilled to raise their hand. So let me just break the ice here and say, I've had evil thoughts. I mean, I, I've had thoughts that were vindictive. I want to get that guy, that guy. I've had thoughts that were, were immoral, that were, were corrupt. I've had thoughts that were really bad, and I'm glad that the Word of God addresses this as an issue and leads us and guides us into victory from these things, or else we would all sit here, and when the concept of evil thoughts came up, we would all sit on our hands and just think, uh, I hope he's talking to that guy over there, because surely he's not talking to me, but if we can kind of get through that and realize that, hey, my mind is a battleground on occasion. There are times where thoughts are entering into my mind that I know are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they need to be dealt with. If we can come to a very mature place, I think we can really surrender to the Word of God and have some powerful and and effective work done by the Spirit of God in our minds and in our hearts and throughout our lives. So here's what I want to do as we get into this. I want to give you a passage of Scripture out of Matthew. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. Matthew 15, verse 19 it's going to reveal something to us, okay? Because when I have dealt with what I would just call evil thoughts in the past, I have tried to do all kinds of mental gymnastics to overcome evil thoughts. I mean, it's the equivalent of a mental cold shower or something like that to try to overcome evil thoughts. But if I'm always working on evil thoughts existing in my mind, if I'm always working on those things in my mind, I might never have any success. Because according to the Scripture, according to Jesus, those thoughts have an origin, a a, a place where they originate. And it's there that we need to go to work. And when we go to work in that place, then we can see an effect. So here in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, you hear Jesus speaking, and he says this. He says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And it's these things that defile a person. I mean, praise God that Jesus would deal with this. I mean, honestly, I think I could go down that list and check off every one of those. Yeah, I've thought that before. I've thought that. I've thought that. I've thought that. I mean, he's not saying this to, to you know, those, those weirdos over there that have all kinds of issues. He's saying this to everyone. Out of your heart come these evil thoughts. And he goes down a list just describing them. And I think he's going down that list not to shame people, but to include everybody. <laughs> so that there's nobody left standing there after hearing him say this, thing. Well, he must be talking to them because I don't have any of those. But by the time he's gone through this list, I think everyone's leaning in, listening and saying, okay, I'm in that group. I'm included here. And he's talking about these things, that they have an origin, a place of existence, that they come from the heart. Now, what that tells me is if I want to win the battle against evil thoughts, I need to deal with an issue in my heart. I mean, if we're just going to say that in short, what we can say is, is bad thinking or, or nasty thinking or evil thinking or evil thoughts, however you want to word it, it's a heart issue. And to go to work at, those, at, the, at the level of origin, at, to go to work against those things in the heart will position us for success in the mind. So if you're wondering, you know, well, how do I know what's in my heart? I mean, I know what's in my mind because those thoughts are or, you know, buzzing around a mile a minute, how do I know what's in my heart? Well, there's a way to know what's in your heart. I'll give you a passage of Scripture here. I mean, God's revealing to us the, the, the whole solution here when we put the Word together. So when you look at the Matthew 15, verse 18, you're just basically jumping a verse earlier there. You're going to see the, the following. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. So if I want to check what's in my heart, I need to listen to what's coming out of my mouth. If the things that are coming out of my mouth are angry, there's anger in my heart. If the things that are coming out of my mouth are perverse, there's perversity in my heart. If the things that are coming out of my mouth are hateful, then there's hate in my heart. If the things that are coming out of my mouth are vindictive, then there's vengeance in my heart. I mean, you get the picture. If you want to know what's in your heart, Check it at your mouth. I'll give you a passage out of the Proverbs here. Proverbs 4, verse 23. It's a call. I mean, it's a declaration. It's almost as if someone's pulling the alarm or ringing the bell, you know, calling for our attention to pay very close attention to an extremely urgent matter. It says, watch over your heart with all diligence. With all diligence. I mean, this is saying... Pull out all the stops. I mean, if you got to pull an all-nighter, pull an all-nighter. It's this call to urgency to see to it that we watch over our heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence. For out of the heart are the issues of life. Now, by itself, that passage is... is just an interesting, wise proverb. But when you attach that to the words of Jesus and him confirming those things that were recorded there by the preacher in the Proverbs, you can see that there's something that God's revealing to us. That our heart is a, a place where, where these things are, are stored up, where these things are fostered, where these things are, are cultivated or, or they're, they're condoned. And then they're released, they're released through our words and manifest in our actions. And if we want to get to the bottom of it, if we are stuck just dealing with actions, we will always be stuck dealing with actions. We'll perform some act, be humiliated or ashamed by it, apologize for it, and a week later be right back in it. If we are just aware of the words, then we'll say the cutting words and then we'll apologize for it. Oh baby, I love you, you know that's not how I feel. And a week later, bang, right back at it until it's actually addressed at the root, the source, and that is in the heart. We're condemned to be on a roller coaster of repeating matters that are, by the Bible's definition, evil, whether they're thoughts or whether those thoughts are acted out upon and become actions. So God is doing something, and it's a wonderful thing. He's after our hearts. I mean, the scripture confirms that in multiple places. I want to give you a passage of scripture here for your notes. You can take it out of Hebrews. Now, the writer of Hebrews here is quoting from the prophet Jeremiah. He's pulling this from the prophet, and he's bringing it into our lives through his writing here to the Hebrews. Hebrews 10, verses 16 and 17. He's confirming God's covenant with us, the things that God's doing in you and in me, and where those things are happening. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them. Okay, so you're finding the covenant. I, in this case, is God and them is us. Me and you. This is the covenant that I will make with them. This is the covenant that I will make with them, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And he says, and then their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I mean, this he's talking about new birth. He's talking about the full work of Jesus Christ. Everything that we celebrate in our our salvation and our being born again is being described here. And that covenant describes a work that's done in our heart and in our mind. The work in our heart to to minister to the source of where all of those corrupt and all of those evil and all those foul and all those dark thoughts originate. And then to work on the mind so that those things that, that, that would slip through could be filtered and surrendered, that we could live out a life trusting, believing, knowing that God is at work in us and that those things that shouldn't be there don't have to be there all by the power of the blood of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I want to give you a passage of scripture out of Romans. Romans chapter 12. I want to read verse 2 because it speaks of something that needs to take place in the life of every believer. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed. Now, I mean, I want to stop there for a second. As believers, we are meant to stand out and look different than the rest of the world. The way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we behave, there's no greater example than Jesus Christ himself. When you read the Gospels, this guy stands out. So much so that even when he stands before Pilate being accused, I mean, this man who is a governor, who's, who's seen it all, stands in awe of Jesus thinking, who is this guy? Why is it that he speaks differently? Why is it that he behaves differently? Why is it that everything about him is different? We're supposed to be just like that as it concerns being in this world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We think differently. We ought to speak differently. We ought to behave differently. Our motivations are different. Everything about us is different that's why the Bible can say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, behold, new things come. Those new things are the new motivations, the new drives, the new things that, that motivate us to function and operate in our lives. Our Romans is saying, don't be conformed to this world, don't look just like the world, but rather be transformed. And now it says how that happens. By the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, I don't want to take a rabbit trail here, but I do want to share something with you that I personally find interesting, okay? So don't think that this is the point, but it's just an interesting thing to be aware of. Now, when I look at the gospel and I look at the scripture, I see that Jesus Christ is the apostle. He's the example set before us. That even as Christians or little Christs, we're meant to be moving in the direction of of who he is. I mean, literally, we're called to be just like Jesus. So when I see his ministry, I'm seeing and I'm seeing everything about it has a purpose and intention for my life. When When I read about the things that he does, when I read about the things that he says, I'm realizing this is not just a cool story for good reading, but this is an example on how I'm meant to live my life. Now, there's an area of Scripture that when I, when I was first born again, I remember reading it and, and thinking, well, that's weird. You ever had one of those moments? You, you haven't, right? No, you've never had that. And it's an area of Scripture where something happens there, and I'm thinking, I can't apply that to my life. I really don't understand what's happening there. And it's, it's a passage of Scripture. It happens, uh, it's recorded a couple of times in the gospel. You'll see it in Matthew. You'll see it in Luke. And Matthew would be 17, chapter 17, Luke uh, chapter 9, where you'll see Jesus with, with a handful of the disciples go to a place where he's met by the prophet, and he's met by Moses, and as he's standing before them, he, he is the Bible uses the word transfigured, and he turns completely white. His clothes turn white. I mean, I actually thought about making a laundry detergent and calling it transfiguration. Because the Bible says his clothes became whiter than any launderer could make them. I mean, there's something here that happens. I mean, and the disciples that witnessed it, they see it and they're, they're awestruck by what they see here. And now, I, I read this and I'm thinking, okay, I don't really get how this applies to my life. In fact, it's a little X-Files to me. I mean, here's the guy standing there and he's meant to be the son of man, but all of a sudden this is happening and it's a little more son of God. And I'm thinking, what is this? I want to offer this to you as a thought that I find very interesting. You know the the word that we just read out of Romans, that we're not to be conformed to this world, but rather we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The word transformed is the same word used for transfigured. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. We're meant to have that experience. It may not mean that we stand on a mountain and glow white, but it means we're meant to be changed. We're meant to be changed in our heart and our mind, our perceptions, our motivations. God is doing a work in us that will be an absolute change, a 180 from the way the world thinks or views. When we come out of that transformation, we're not the same anymore. The way we feel about things, the way we respond to things, the way we perceive, the way we see, the way we function, the way we act, the way we speak, everything is different. And that's how we're not conformed to this world. It's the reason why we're not just worldly people who have our ticket punched for heaven, but we're new creatures. Completely changed. I mentioned before we're going to find something. Because God is at work. He's at work in your heart to affect your mind. I mentioned we're going to find why we're armed with the Word of God, why it's the sword of the Spirit. Now, we had uh, some conversation about this, I believe it was just last Wednesday in the discipleship. It was really great and powerful. I want to give you a passage of scripture here on why we're armed with the Word. I'll give you a passage of scripture out of 2 Corinthians. I want to look at verse 10. We're going to look at verses, uh, sorry, chapter 10, verse 3 through 6. Now it speaks of our situation or our circumstance. I mean, it says, though we walk in the flesh, I mean, that means you're here on the earth. In bodily form, right here and now, dealing with other people that are in bodily form in the situations and the circumstances that exist here on the earth. For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful, meaning having the power of God, for the destruction of fortresses. And then it goes on to say what it is that we're destroying. We are destroying imaginations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, let me get something out of the way here. God loves creativity. This isn't a slam on creativity. When it's talking about imaginations, it's talking about all of the temptations to to believe and to think outside of what is true. That God has established the truth. So here's a great example of where the weapons of our warfare would have come in handy. I mean, you're going to have to go back a little bit, and if this is a bit of a rabbit trail and you don't know the story, don't worry, we'll get back to where we're going. But think about Eve in the garden, having heard from God that if you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. And then here comes the serpent. And he says to her, Ah, now come on, Eve. You really think you're going to die? I'm telling you, you eat of that tree, you're not going to die. All of a sudden, these imaginations and thoughts exist in her mind that go against what God said, and when she surrenders to those things, she's led down a path of destruction. But we've been given something by the Spirit of God, the very Word of God, to exist, to be written on our hearts and our minds for the purpose of capturing those thoughts. And when you think of the word capture, I want you just to consider like a checkpoint. Everything that goes through my mind has to pass through that checkpoint. If it is of God, it can go through. If it's not, we're going to destroy it. We're going to destroy it with the weapons of our warfare, which is the word, the sword of the spirit. God's at work in our hearts to affect our minds. Now, there's something that's great here. I mean, I want to share this with you. It might sound a little goofy. But I want to tell you what we then understand once we understand. I know it sounds goofy, but what you understand once you understand. And I want to turn to an area of the gospel here that I believe needs to happen in all of our lives. It's at the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24. Now, If if you're familiar with Luke and and what the the writing is here in the scripture, we refer to it as the, the walk to Emmaus. So Jesus has been crucified, he's been raised up from the dead, and now there are are those who once walked with him who are, are walking along, and Jesus appears to them, speaks to them, ministers to them. And they have no idea that it's Jesus until he reveals to them the word, and then their eyes are open. So this opening of the eyes is really meant to happen in every one of our lives. I mean, every one of us is on this walk to Emmaus, that Jesus comes and opens our eyes to the truth. And in that moment, there's this revelation, this realization, this understanding that we're going to see here in the Scripture. I want to give you these passages of Scripture from Luke 24. I want to look at verses 45 and 47. So Jesus has walked with them, and he's revealed to them all that is in the Scripture. I mean, you'll read that as you, you read earlier in the passages there. So, I mean, it was a lengthy walk. They're walking and they're talking you know, and, and as Jesus is revealing to them the scripture, he, he finally comes to this place where the revelation has, has taken place and it reads like this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, remember God's covenant with us is that he would write his word on our heart and on our mind. That's what we read out of Hebrews, that's what's quoted from Jeremiah, and that's what's taking place here in Luke. After Jesus revealed the scripture, it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture, and he said to them, thus it's written that the Christ would suffer and would rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all of the nations." To me, when I read that, those things stand out to me. If Jesus has just revealed all of the word of God, and he's opened my mind to understand, and then this is the statement that's revealed, once my mind is open to understanding, I can assure you that the content of that statement is worth making a note of, It's powerful. That Jesus would be crucified, that he'd be raised from the dead, and then that this would be the result, that repentance... And forgiveness would be proclaimed in his name to all of the nations. Repentance and forgiveness. These are the things that we minister in. I mean, if we were to have a, a ministry need in, in any one of your lives and you came and you said, I need ministry in this, there's this, this issue in my life, a stronghold of anger or a stronghold of hate or a stronghold of lust and I want it out, it's ruining my life, it's ruining my marriage, it, it's, it's invaded my household and I want to shut the door to this, it's got to go, those are the two things we would minister, repentance and forgiveness. We would minister those two things, and upon ministering those two things, we would then be able to operate in the authority of Jesus Christ and clean house. But it's interesting to me that as Jesus would open our minds and reveal to us the things that are true, he would reveal that he's alive, king of kings, forevermore, and that we're to proclaim two things, repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. So I want to look at a couple of things here. I want to access these things, and I want to see what's necessary in order to access these things. I want to give you a a passage of Scripture out of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. I want to read verses 37 through 40. Jesus is revealing, he's making a declaration as to how we're called to live our lives, and it involves your mind and how you think. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind says, this is the greatest and foremost commandment. And he goes on to say, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he reveals the importance of these things, saying on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. I mean, basically what he's saying is, if these things don't exist, then, then you can just toss this out the window because it's not going to help. It all hinges on, it all depends upon, it's all conditional upon this. Giving God your heart, your soul, which is in your mind, and your mind. These are the things that are to be surrendered to God. And the second is like it, loving your neighbor as yourself. When I look at this, I have to ask, why are these things, why do they have anything in common? Why are they linked? Why are they yoked? I mean, it almost sounds like, you know, if you're not careful, you could think, well, Jesus really didn't know the answers, so he picked A and B. But I got news for you. Jesus knows the answer. <laughs> These things are yoked because they're dependent upon each other. God is at work in our minds and desiring that our minds be surrendered to him so that we can function and operate in the love that he's called us to. That conditional love that when we offer it to one another leads to God's love being perfected in us, as we said earlier, and him abiding with us. And I want to give you the reason why these things are connected. I mean, if we were to simply talk about loving your neighbor, we would understand that it's important. And most of us, would, we were asked, well, how do you know that that's important, would probably answer, well, because Jesus said we're supposed to do it. And I think that's an excellent answer. But why would Jesus tell us that? I mean, when you really look at the scripture and you see the things that Jesus says, you can see that he's bearing witness of what has already been written. Most of the statements that he says have already been recorded in the Psalms and the Proverbs and the prophets, in the Torah. And as Jesus is commanding us, instructing us to love our neighbor, he's doing that once again. He's quoting what's already been written, in this case, what's been written in Leviticus. So I want to offer this to you as how we're called to love our neighbor, what it means to love your neighbor, so that we can embrace that, come into an agreement that yes, we see that in the scripture, then embrace it. And apply it. I'll give you the passage of scripture here. I mentioned we were going to find how to love your neighbor. Leviticus 19 verse 18. Leviticus 19 verse 18. It reads like this. You shall not take revenge nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. Rather, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. It's God speaking. He's speaking to you and He's speaking to me and He's revealing to us how we love our neighbor. And it starts with not taking revenge, not holding a grudge, Those two things that we're meant to proclaim throughout the nations when Jesus renews our mind, opens our mind to understand and reveals to us the things that result from His death and resurrection, our ability to proclaim repentance. We don't take vengeance. We forgive. Repentance and forgiveness. We don't take vengeance. We don't hold grudges. I'm willing to forgive rather than to vindicate. I'm willing to repent rather than hold a grudge. Repent of my anger, my hurt, my wound, and those things. These are the calls that we have upon our lives in order to love one another. A lifestyle that's free from trying to vindicate oneself and a life that's free from holding grudges against those who've harmed us or hurt us or slandered us in any way, shape, or form. And to take on a lifestyle that's free from the vindication or revenge And a lifestyle that's free from holding grudges is to take on a lifestyle that's not in bondage. When we can come to a place where we're no longer trying to take revenge on those who've harmed us and we're no longer holding grudges against those who've hurt us, we come to a place where we're not being led by them, not being led by past circumstances, not being led by past hurts and wounds, not being led by those things that were so crippling. When we embrace those things and we hold on to vengeance, when we embrace those things and we hold on to grudges, we position ourselves to perpetually be led by those things that cause pain, grief, and destruction. But when we can choose to operate in the love that God's called us to, to love our neighbor, to not vindicate, to not hold a grudge, we can step out from that bondage and be led into liberty by the Spirit of God. And that's the call that God's placing on our lives. The reason why he's at work in our hearts to have an effect on our mind. Working in our heart, the source of all of those vengeful thoughts, the source of all of those grudges so that our mind can be affected. And the words that proceed from our mouth and the actions that are brought into existence as a result can be those that glorify God, position us to love our neighbor. And receive the benefits, as were stated before in 1 John, if we love our neighbor, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. To be in the presence of God. To come to the place where his perfect love exists in us, leaving no room for fear and anxiety. To be the courageous, faith-filled body of Christ that God has designed and called us to be. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning.